Westorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredos. A Dance with Dragons is the longest of the books so far. It's also the darkest and least understood, thanks to being the most recent. It's the culmination, also so far, of George's style. Honed over the course of the prior books and the rest of his career, it has the extended length of A Storm of Swords, the expanded pacing of A Feast for Prose. It brings POVs together like a clash of kings and has the setup of a Game of Thrones. If you're watching live, feel free to ask live questions, submit comments, etc. We may answer them on the podcast. You also can send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets, Facebook, Flick, Discord, and Slack. You can also post questions to us on places like Twitter, or if you're a patron, you can post questions on the weekly episode posts. Check out the Isle of Faces podcast. That's Joe Buckley's show. He calls it Scraps and Scrolls when it's the tandem Valar reread us episodes. Doing great work over there. I know a lot of y'all uh, listen regularly. You do Valar reread us Monday or Tuesday, then Scraps and Scrolls the next day, and then maybe a different Song of Ice and Fire podcast the next day. <laughs> There's enough for every day of the week, basically. Not to mention our back catalog filled with scripted episodes and the like. Also, please check out Nina's stuff. That is, uh, uh, her contributions have been excellent and consistent, and there's a lot more of them that you haven't seen over on goodqueenallie.tumblr.com. That's Allie with one L, Tumblr, T-U-M-B-L-R. This week, we have double Daenerys. Daenerys 8 is the first one we have today. A Dornish frog in the dragon pit, a.k.a. a feast for foes. Theon 1, Jane, Jane, it rhymes with airplane, a.k.a. Little Walder won't grow up to be a fray. Daenerys 9, the one in Daznak's pit, a.k.a. How to Train Your Drogon. And finally, John 11, packed in black, a.k.a. the one where Shireen is unclean. Continuing our kill or be killed theme from last time, we find ourselves with new examples. Theon knows they must escape or die, and for the Free Folk spy and extraction squad, that means killing some guards. What says kill or be killed more plainly than gladiatorial combat, right? Pit fights. Two enter, one leaves. That says it all. Somewhat similar in spirit to kill or be killed is do or die. Theon and Jane have no choice but to jump and hope it works out. Jumping might kill them. Not jumping definitely will. Painfully, Danny has no choice but to face Drogon and win him over. Same thing. Trying to master Drogon might kill her. Running from Drogon definitely will. Theon and Jane jump from a high wall. Danny and Drogon fly out from a pit. Theon had just been down in the crypts and was asked to show the Spearwives the way to the crypts. Danny had just been down in the depths of showing Quentin, Viserion, and Rhaegal. On the opposite side of things, there's a lot of empathy, or at least thoughts of empathy. It's not always easy to make those things reality in a world like this. John feels Tormund's loss when it comes up that he's lost two sons and one of them rose as a white. Daenerys feels for a huge variety of people, for those being sold that she can't save, for those who continue to be abused by the system she's trying to change, and so many more. Empathy really is a pretty standard thing for Daenerys. It may be Bran's empathy that saved Theon, giving him the courage to regain his identity and escape. Certainly Theon's empathy saved Jane, as he worries that they might not care about her if they knew who she really was, so he keeps her identity a secret. 
He even manages to feel sorry for the guards they fooled in pulling off the rescue, knowing that Ramsey will be displeased with them and knowing what he does when he's displeased. Negotiations and the results of negotiations are in plain sight everywhere, including its said pit fights. The reopening of Daznax was, after all, one of the conditions of the peace deal, and hostages are involved to make sure that all those who enter are allowed to leave. Of course, that's going to get complicated when one of them does not. Even though six women enter and six women leave Jane's room, the very premise of their subterfuge, along with a window, that also gets complicated. There are those who see things in simpler, more blunt terms. At the wall, though the plan to take hostages from the free folk seems to sway some of the northerners, Bowen Warsh does not see that middle ground. To him, there is only one choice. He's still in kill-or-be-killed mode. Similarly, back at Slaver's base, Gahaz the Shavepate argues that there will never be peace with such as these. They can't be trusted, only killed. With all that in mind, consider just how much action there is today. George is great with action. He writes them scenes like that really well, but he's never relied on them. That just makes the ones he does write all the more compelling. This book is huge, but it doesn't have a lot of action. And that's notable when it does happen. It's packed with drama and conflict and tension. Action's more of a side dish to this point. Danny's already conquered Marines. He was trying to rule it. Jon Snow already had this big battle at the wall with Stannis, and now he's trying to rule Castle Black, manage and prepare for future battles. And right now, the free folk are the focus. For him, the action to this point has been in the training yard, right? <laughs> Theon's chapters are incredible. We love these Winterfell chapters, but the action, I mean, meh, it's not because of that. Until now, it was limited to what? He got an arrow shot at him by a Krannic man? That wasn't even at Winterfell. Now comes the more straightforward and visceral excitement of their escape, and it's so well set up prior to this. The tension in that escape and the tension in the pit are incredible individually and as mirrors to each other. Both scenes have crossbow bolts, flying, panic, death, desperation, and a need to master that or die. One happens in the midst of winter where it's difficult to see more than a few feet because of all the snow swirling about. The other amidst intense heat, made even more so by actual dragon's breath. Not to mention all the gladiator bouts and moments like Sir Hostine ne nearly killing Lord Manderley in front of everyone. We're still a ways from the end, but the action is definitely picking up, giving more of a climactic feel. From here on out, the action will be ra uh, rather regular instead of infrequent. Though it's good that Theon and Jane escape, we lose our window into what's happening at Winterfell. They're heading over to meet with Stannis and Asha and crew. Danny has only one more chapter after the two we have today, but Barristan and Quentin have us covered at Marine, not to mention Tyrion nearby and Victorian on his way. So at last, perhaps you see what I mean when I say this book brings POVs together. Most of that is happening here in this final quarter of the book, although it sneakily did that already with Jamie when it reunited him with Brienne. We begin with the first of a Daenerys double dose. Dual dragons down in darkness, then Drogon diving downward, disrupting the day's duels at Daznex. Daenerys 8, a Dornish frog in the dragon pit, a.k.a. a feast for foes. Of course, she's eating with her enemies, hence a feast for foes. A chapter with clear connections to Tyrion's last one, where many of the same Yunkish elite appear and those same sellsword captains. The chapter sequencing is notable right away. Castle Blacks just had a party with the Alice Karstark and Sigorn wedding. Well, ditto over here. It's not actually a wedding feast. It's 
you know, maybe at that level of excitement, though Danny's not having a good time. She, and of course, it's only happening because of her wedding to his daughter. She's sitting down to eat and celebrate with enemies. She's agreed to peace, but it kind of looks like from the outside, like she's on the losing side, like she conceded rather than bargained. And the efficient first line once again sets the mood. The hall rang to Yunkish laughter, Yunkish songs, and Yunkish prayers. Notice immediately that Daenerys is nowhere to be found in the first paragraph of her own chapter. There's several sentences, about four, before that it's her. that We see her, that she's the one having these reactions. It's just Yunkai and Hisdar. It's kind of like their party, right? Their pleasure, the pact is something to celebrate for them. But for Danny, it's not really something to celebrate. It's so much lower than what she aimed for. And the more she thinks about it, the worse the deal seems. As Joe writes, George takes some time to describe this rather different feast, but what we're really interested in is Danny's continued unfulfillment. Right, this was the goal. This is peace, but it doesn't taste like winning. It doesn't taste like victory, and there's something just wrong about it all. Everything's yunkish. Right? That's what that first line indicates. And the Yunkai are her foes. So what's so great about celebrating with your enemies when their enemies are getting most of what they want? I mean, Astapor is a hellscape. Marine is somewhat pacified. Yunkai was never breached. The other two were. So really, if you think about it this way, even the fact that Marine isn't permitted to deal in slaves could be seen as a, something as a victory for Yunkai. Because Marine was the greatest of the slave cities for a long time. But as we've just gone over, Yunkai is atop the pyramid now. They're number one. The peace deal ensures that. So out of all this, they've emerged with more profit. They're in a better position. Danny helped Yunkai, and that's just kingmaker among the slave cities in, in one manner of speaking. Of course, she did free a lot of people. There's a lot of people no longer in bondage. Still, it's well short of what her goal was. For Danny, though, there's no excitement. She's thinking about what's still unaccomplished, how this is, falls short, and how much death there still is. She's thinking back on other characters that have been in her arc throughout all of the previous books. Well, not Feast for Crows, but <laughs> here's an important thought along those lines. She thought of Dorea, of Quaro of Eroa, of a little girl she had never met whose name had been Hosea. Better a few should die in the pit than thousands at the gates. This is the price of peace. I pay it willingly. If I look back, I am lost. Quick reminder who those people are in case it slipped your mind. Hosea is the girl apparently eaten by Drogon. Eroa, of course, we've been over plenty of times. She's the one saved only for her fate to be worse a short time later. Danny's probably thought of her more than all the rest of these put together. Dorea was the pretty bed slave bought to please Viserys, who then taught Danny some of her skills to use on Drogo. In the show, she was the one that was a traitor, but in The Clash of Kings, she just dies in the Red Waste, having never done anything evil or against Danny. Quaro was her fourth blood rider, killed when Drogo's blood riders fought hers while shadows danced in Miri Mazdor's tent. With those names, I think Danny is trying to tell herself this was worth it, because in theory, absolutely, yes, peace is worth a very high price. That attitude, I think, is praiseworthy, but the particulars, the actual details, the fine print, as Joe puts it, Danny's getting badly beaten there because this isn't good. That part of the deal, mm, 
didn't work out the way she thought. It's not as good of a arrangement as she thought it might be. And you can tell that by parsing the details, which we've done in prior episodes. Beyond the details, though, the attitude of the scene is a major clue that the deal favors young Kai over Danny's interests. Again, look at how happy they are. And to them, they already thought they were winning. They thought, given their attitude about the siege and all that, they're clearly arrogant about their chances. So to them, this is what they wanted. The things she's telling herself aren't really landing. She's trying to convince herself that this is worth it, but it's, she's not really convincing herself. It's not really working. Now, consider the deals made by John with Tormund and Tycho and Stannis, for example. In every case, the negotiations ended with both sides feeling a bit cheated, but also gaining some ground. They also clearly got some of the things they wanted. In other words, despite a few exceptions, for the most part, people got what they wanted, but at a high cost. That seems reasonable. That said, all three of those deals were with trustworthy people. There were no deals with the devil here. But as we pointed out many times, the slavers are basically devils. So they have the horns and they have the horns to prove it. So that's the big difference. John is making deals with people he can trust. He has a reason to be able to trust and they've proven themselves in the past. Pretty much the opposite here. How do you compromise with slavery? What's halfway between no slavery and yes slavery? Some slavery? That's still slavery. There isn't really middle ground there, but that's what Danny has been forced into. There's a slavery-free zone now, but it's only marine. It's really easy for slavers to get around the arrangement. Look at Slaver's Bay. Look at the landmass. There's just that one dot of city that is the only slavery-free zone. You can see why Danny wouldn't necessarily be too pleased when she set out to free the entire region. This will even be pointed out in John's chapter uh, as sort of a what if. Like, what if John was dealing with the Weeper and not Torment? Well, then John would be in a similar spot where the guy he's having to deal with is not trustworthy, and that changes the whole picture. According to John, as we'll see in that chapter, he would still offer that man peace. And that is probably a deal with the devil, and that might bite John in the butt if it went that way but we'll never know. Instead, his own people bite him in the butt, so to speak. What we might be seeing is Danny going too soft on people who she should crush, perhaps setting that, uh, setting up rather that she'll overcompensate later, crushing people who should maybe she go a little softer on. Of course, there are people like the Dothraki calls who she's probably going to encounter, and they do not qualify as people who she should go softer on. <laughs> so, Mm, there's other people that maybe deserve to be crushed that she still may yet encounter. Levalentines, for example, although that may happen without her direct involvement. And the Pentashi as well. Maybe people like Euron or Cersei. We'll see. We'll see. The giving of hostages here is interesting. It's another example of Danny kind of getting the short end of the stick when it comes down to the details. For example, it's three of his Dar's cousins and a bunch of people that Danny uses in her military and plus Grolio. And his Dar's cousins are going to be freed first among all of them, which is another sign that this is all filled with favoritism. It's like, gee, there's seven hostages. The first three freed are his Dar's cousins. Like, didn't want to mix that up a little bit? <laughs> Maybe one of his Dar's cousins, one of Danny's commanders? No, just all three of his Dar's cousins. It's so blatant, right? And we also do know that Tata Prince is going to turn to Danny, and the hostages were probably freed, meaning in the Winds of Winter, um, because this all gets worked out 
And we also find out along around here that the Tattered Prince has wanted to join Danny. Well, we found that out already. But this is when Danny finds that out. And she wants to set she wants to set Pretty Maris free and to send that message subtly. And of course, Maris says, Hey, well, we've always been planning on joining you. So it all kind of kind of works out in that sense. So the hostage situation, other than Brolio, who there's nothing, nothing we can do about that. It seems like it might be worked out. In other words, even though this deal was bad, Dario, Jogo, and Hero will be freed. But again, we don't have kind of confirmation of that. Just only the only the part about the Tattered Prince actually turning, not that he succeeded. So another bit of encroachment. We see all these little contracts and different ways they're trying to push Danny around a little bit, seeing how they can get as much as possible. His dar immediately dismisses the shave paint when he's named king. It's kind of shocking. He's just like making moves. But it's all, in another way, it's not shocking at all. Because we know that these two don't like each other. And Skaha has just been saying, look, he's going to wipe me out or I need to wipe him out first, right? They're, they feel like they're in a kill or be killed situation. So of course, Hisdar is not, happy with the fact that this guy who wants him dead has this big group of armed men with masks at his control. So he puts his cousin in charge of them. <laughs> How many cousins does this guy have? Of course, that's not a good uh, solution for his dar. This is, well, this is a bit like way back in a Game of Thrones. This is kind of like Littlefinger in the City Watch and brazen, the Brazen Beast and Shave Pate have a tighter relationship than Littlefinger and the City Watch of Westeros or of King's Landing. But it's a similar kind of thing where just firing a guy and replacing him with someone else doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be loyal to this new person. Skaha's made the brazen beast. He formed that group. That's why when he goes to Barristan later and says, look, I'm not in charge officially, but they're mine. He's not just saying that. He's not like stubbornly insisting that they're, that he owns that group because he made them. He's referring to who they're loyal to. Littlefinger says that the man who pays them is the man who controls them. He made that case pretty convincingly to Ned, but there are always exceptions to that. Ideology can interfere. Like, imagine trying to bribe Melisandre. How could you do that? Unless your bribe includes something useful against the others, I don't think she's going to be interested. Think more about Prince Daemon Targaryen and the Gold Cloaks. When his enemies sat the Iron Throne, the Gold Cloaks appeared to be against him. But when it mattered most, <laughs> their loyalty switched to him. They liked him, and he was the man, not the one who formed the City Watch, but he's the one who organized them, gave them gold cloaks, gave them prestige and more honor and, and all that. So they liked him, and that's who they stuck with. So ideology does have a role here. There's certainly many Miranese who want to end slavery, who want to change the old ways. That's the whole point of the shaving of the hair, shaving the Giscari traditional look. But there's a more pressing reason for most of them here, which is just not dying. That's what Brown Ben Pum Plum <laughs> lays out in this chapter. Gold is worthless when you're dead. That's the rub here as well. Freedom is nothing if you're dead too. If you win freedom for other people, then maybe your death was worth it. But this is not a matter of, say, accepting a bribe and stepping aside. No, this is a much longer, much deeper battle much longer campaign. This is a closer to, again, to the kill or be killed situation that we keep coming back to. The brazen beasts, after all, wear masks to avoid 
the nobility targeting them because they don't want to be seen as part of this new progressive marine that's emerging because the old guard are murderous towards the new. So they have to emerge the winners or be killed. That's what they're seeing. That's the way they see it. Danny doesn't seem to fully grasp that. And Scott has, hasn't been able to convince her of that. And so he's going to try to convince Barristan instead once Danny is flown off on Drogon and, and he begins to worry that she's not coming back. And the dragons in the pit are a good symbol for how tenuous and unhappy this peace deal is, Nina writes. This is a very good way to look at it. The dragons are her. That's going to culminate with Drogon really showing how things are when he comes in and just busts it all up and burns things and says, no, destruction, blood and fire. Here we see the temper, the attitude of what happens when you lock all this up inside deep down. It's literally deep down. They go down several flights of stairs. They have time for a lot of conversation. This goes to show, A, how big the pyramid is and how down deep the dragons are stored. This is very symbolic. It reminds us again of the TV moment when Danny is crying as she locks her dragons up. Every time <laughs> we get moments like that, that reminds me of that. It's one of the sadder moments in the show. And of course, don't forget too, among the hostage situation, relating back to that, because Yurkaz Zoyunzak is going to get trampled at the pit. They're going to try to change the hostage deal and they're going to say, we're not going to let Hero and Jogo and Dario go. None of these O-name guys get to leave unless you kill the dragons. And that's like, what? What kind of a change? That's a humongous change to the deal. <laughs> that's a wild, wild change. Of course, they only ask that while Danny's gone, right? Danny is, is, is out there. So they're like, kill Viserion and Rhaegal. They know she wouldn't have ever agreed to that, but they figure, hey, well, once she comes back, if she comes back, it'll be too, she won't be able to do anything about it. The dragons will be dead. She might be mad, but the dragons will be dead. Now, there's a kind of a slight ironic parallel, maybe not ironic, but kind of funny parallel. Wyman Manderly, one of the largest men in the entire series, uses going to the bathroom as an excuse to go talk to Davos. And here, Danny does the same thing. She doesn't quite have the, uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the ability to look like she needs to spend an hour on the toilet. She looks like she needs like a minute in there. She's tiny. She's like the opposite, right? Danny does, but I'm building up to something with that. I'm not just trying to be gross. Danny doesn't eat much. And that's important because it's, gonna, it, it's, it's relevant to be a poisoning attempt at her later. But also, uh, just sneaking off to talk to dragons. <laughs> well, I, I need to use the bathroom, but really, I'm going to go down to the dragons. <laughs> Though it's nothing at all like the skin changer bond, there's hints that there's something extrasensory, some sort of thing, some sort of bond that might be supernatural. It's hard to put your finger on it. Here's a quote to kind of describe it. One of the elephants trumpeted at them from his stall. An answering roar from below made her flush with sudden heat. Prince Quentin looked up in alarm. The dragons know when she is near, Sir Barristan told him. Or is it just the dragon hearing the elephant? Barristan suggests it's more than that. Presumably there isn't always an elephant in the mix making noise here. So Barristan seems to know what he's talking about. It's funny, uh, Danny basically foreshadows what's going to happen. She, she thinks, uh, you know, he's, he, Quentin's acting stubborn. He's like, I'm not going to leave. I'm not afraid of these dangers. And Danny thinks, well, then he will die here. And yep, yeah, almost literally there. 
he technically survives the burning and dies in her bed. And she's still trying to think through this, like ah, she can't make herself desire him. That would be certainly inconvenient to solving this situation. But she's like, look, man, why are you so fixated on marriage? She makes a very sensible comment here. Why do we have to get married for us to be allies? Why can't Dorn and Daenerys Targaryen be allies without a marriage? Why is a marriage so crucial here? But, but Quentin just doesn't, doesn't get it. He's still fixated on trying to win her over, even as she's saying, look, I know what you want. You don't really want my hand. That's not what you want. Maybe you think you do, but that's not really why your dad sent you. It's not the marriage that really matters most of all. It's the alliance, and it doesn't have to be based on a marriage. She's like, look, this is transactional. There's things you can give me as well. We can discuss that later. They don't ever get the chance to, but maybe she will with different Dornish nobles later. If Doran lives long enough for that, or Ariane Martell, maybe more likely. I don't know. And it's a better relationship than with sellswords who have political goals that are less likely to change on a whim than a sellsword who is mostly just looking out for his life, which again, that's somewhat fair, but it also requires a certain amount of preparation and understanding. It almost looks like good foreshadowing here. <laughs> There's this line, Rhaegal roared in answer and fire filled the pit, a spear of red and yellow. Viserion replied, his own flames golden orange, right? It's a spear in the color of the sun. It's sun spear right there. You think that's going to work out given symbology like that? Nope, 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 oops. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Interestingly, the dragons don't react to Quentin the way they reacted to Brown Ben Plum, even though they both have the so-called drop of dragon blood. And as far as we know, both the stories are accurate. Quentin's story about being descended from the first Daenerys, we have no reason to doubt that. We accept that 100%. Brown Ben Plum's story is the one that might be sketchier, but he seems to have proof via the dragons liking him. So I tend to believe, I think they're both true. Thus, we have a conundrum here that clearly something's different. Maybe it's a genetic trait, right? Just because both your parents have the same eye color doesn't mean you will have that eye color too. Maybe it's a genetic trait, some sort of dragon gene that manifests in some people that have the bloodline and not others. Quentin maybe didn't get it, Ben did. Something the dragons can sense or smell or somehow. Guess just Quentin doesn't have it. Uh, he doesn't realize that this is a problem and it will be Barrison and Masande who watch over him when he's dying. Pay attention to Masande in these final scenes. She's doing, she's making really interesting observations and she's really making me think we need to do an episode focused just on her because for one thing, she's so different than her TV show version. For other thing, there's just really interesting things going on with like her senses and, and I don't know, it's cool. Here's a quote. Danny flinched. Who's there? Only Masande. The Nathi scribe moved closer to the bed. This one heard you crying. Crying? I was not crying. Why would I cry? I have my peace. I have my king. I have everything a queen might wish for. You had a bad dream. That was all. With this and the time she heard the scraping of the bricks, remember that? Masande heard scraping and it turned out to be Viserion sort of making a cave way down in the base of the pyramids. How did she hear that? So it seems like her hearing is exceptional again. And again, we are reminded that the Nathi look kind of like the children of the forest and their hearing is crazy exceptional too. So 
again, she was told she was dreaming. So two times she has this sort of, she shows off her amazing hearing and is like, no, you were just dreaming. I think we should go with Masande here. It probably wasn't a dream. Masande probably knows when she's dreaming. (laughs) It's like, I know it can be hard to tell sometimes, but I don't know about you. I don't mistake my sense of smell for dreams or my sense sense of smell, my hearing for dreams often or at all, especially not twice, especially not like this, where it's very distinct what she's describing. And I bet Danny was crying. And of course, we've already talked about how Danny is trying to convince herself, pump herself up, that this is worth it. But it's in, internally, she's, it's just not landing. She's not convincing herself. I really wonder what's going on with Masande. It's really neat. There's, there's bound to be more of this in the future. So I'm excited to see what else George gives us for that character. Let's talk about Dario for a minute. A couple of y'all have noticed that Dario's attitude, his role as a person in Danny's life is a lot like the dragons. He's angry. He's unhappy with the situation, kind of like they are. They're trapped. They're not doing what they want. Dragons are war and woe. Dario is war and woe. Peace is, doesn't suit him. Peace doesn't really suit the dragons either. He's lashing out about anything and everything. He's trying to pick fights. It's pretty similar, right? The dragons are really unhappy with the state of affairs as well. I wonder if when she eventually unleashes her dragon, she'll unleash Dario as well, because that dude is capable of some serious damage. And if she's angry enough or determined enough, well, we've seen what she might do. And this might also set a future precedent for her relationship with Swords. After all, this is her reconnection with Brown Ben Plum. She kind of takes it a little personally. Maybe she shouldn't, but she does. We're going to see how this proceeds from here. Um, maybe she doesn't trust the Tattered Prince. Who knows how she'll deal with the Golden Company in the long term. Maybe their uh, better reputation means nothing to her. She says similar things about the other sellsword companies in terms of maybe trying to win them over, saying, look, maybe it's an advantage to us that they're so distrusting or distrustworthy because maybe we can bribe them to be on our side. She specifically mentions Bloodbeard as one of the options to go meet with, and Barristan doesn't react too strongly to the others, but about that one, he speaks up. And you know Barristan is, he tends to be a little bit political with his speech. He doesn't, He's not very blunt with Danny. He he knows how to speak in court and he doesn't try to, he doesn't get aggressive with his speech, but he does about this one. He speaks to her in ways he doesn't normally say. He he, he refers to her age, which is a little demeaning. He's like, you're too young to have remembered, blah, blah, blah. That's the kind of thing that Jorah said a lot. Like, you're too young, blah, 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 where he's trying to put her in a corner and remind her how young she is to act like he's wiser. Barrison doesn't really do that very often. He's a lot more respectful. But this flares his anger because it reminds him of the Nine Penny Kings, which is what made him famous. He's the one who slew Maylis the Monstrous. We've got some episodes on that with Stephen Atwell. If you haven't checked him out, good time to uh, think about doing so. He notates that Bloodbeard is like those guys, the Nine Penny Kings, who were terrible men. There were nine of them, and several of them were pirates. So there you go. I mean, it tells you everything that, that the rest of them were allied with pirate lords. So <laughs> even without knowing who the others were, you know, they were allied with pirates. So yeah. And I'm not talking about Salador San pirates. I'm talking about like 
normal pirates who are a lot worse than Salador. Salador is not really that good. He's just better than other pirates <laughs> and a lot more entertaining. That's where we're at with that. Danny is thinking maybe we can make use of that. And Barrett's like, you do not want to make use of that. Let our enemies keep that. So Robert Brassie kind of exists in this scene and in this episode in, in several fragments. His name comes up a lot in Daznak's pit, but it's sort of set up here as well. If, remember how he talks about, man, Ned, maybe we should just go on the road and become cell swords, leave all this behind. Bloodbeard is kind of like what Robert would be if he had become a cell sword captain. Yeah, if he had done that with his life, that's very similar. And the other reflection of Robert is this Barsena black hair character who is Barsena, Barathean, black hair, where everyone makes, you know, the story makes a big deal out of Barathean hair being black and the sea being strong. And of course, who is Barsena about to die facing in the arena? A boar. And in both cases, Barrison Selmy is going to witness this happen. Uh, so, yeah, that's all kind of ug. <laughs> but it's kind of cool too. Straight up ug is that Danny has her, you know, we, we see her sleep with his dar and she doesn't tell him about her inability to bear children, which is actually kind of working for her in this part. Uh, of course, she doesn't want to be infertile, but she certainly doesn't want to have a child with his dar for multiple reasons. She just, A, just doesn't want to, <laughs> just straight up. But also, it could be one of those things where if she has a child, they might just try to kill Danny and rule through that child. So that's not possible. My head cannon on Brown Ben's story about finding the gold on the corpse, that story he tells. We've referred to this anecdote several times in advance of actually having it happen. And I don't have a whole lot to say on the specific event itself because we've already talked about it. But I wanted to add one detail is that I think he's lying about it. I think he, I don't think he made the whole thing up, but it's possible. What I think is that he changed details. Like, He's not the one that got looted by his fellows. Like, he's probably one of the looters. <laughs> he's probably one of the ones that had this gold brought to him by this newbie. And they were like, look at this dumb kid. We're going to take his money. Part of the reason I think this is it, the details of his story are very sketchy. Kind of like uh, the Walder story about his cousin's murder. Like, some of these details are a little like, wait, this doesn't really add up, does it? For example, his supposition is that this one body was really covered in flies. That's probably why no one had searched it yet. Like, what? This is a battlefield. Everybody is covered in flies. <laughs> what is so special about the flies on this one body? Like, oh, it's got crusted blood. It's a freaking battlefield. There's, it's disgusting everywhere. Like, what? This just doesn't, eh, I don't really, I'm not really buying that. But I do believe Ben on telling her not to take it personally. She says, did I mistreat the second sons? Cheat you? And he's, he responds kind of snarkily like, oh, it's not about that, your high and mightiness. And he's like, look, this isn't about you. Like, don't make it about you at all. This isn't personal. It's about us surviving. But that does not mean she has no reason to be upset. She still has reason to be upset. After all, he lied to her multiple times. That's, that counts. But on top of that, he stole money from her. He was like, hey, I'm going to go bribe these other people for you and try to bring them over to my side. Psych! I'm going to keep the money and join them. So he did loot her on the way out the door. So there is that. Danny just doesn't seem, doesn't really care that much about money, though. <laughs> she doesn't pay a whole lot of attention to that. She's more upset about the, the personal thing. Fair. Fair enough. But it's still better for her to, to perceive Ben's attitude properly so she knows how he'll act. 
All right, let's move on. Theon one. Jane, Jane, it rhymes with airplane, a.k.a. Little Walder, won't grow up to be a fray. Shout out to Margot on our Discord server who caught my mistake. I actually wrote Big Walder won't grow up to be a fray the first time uh, when, we, when we advertised the chapter at the end of last week and, and some of our social media came out wrong like that. I was thinking of their actual size because, yes, Little Walder is the bigger one. And you know what we need? We need, the, we need the Walders and the Kettle Blacks to hang out for maximum confusion. Yeah. I also wanted to call to say Jane, Jane, it rhymes with plain, but you would think I was writing P-L-A-I-N. And so I meant plane, like airplane. So we had to put airplane in. Anyway, it, jokes aren't good if you explain them. So I've already ruined it. More importantly, Theon, as far as names go, Theon is Theon. The chapter is Theon, not the ghost in Winterfell, the prince of Winterfell, Reek, any of that. Not only does the name change come forward, his behavior changes. It's hard to imagine Reek running away from Ramsey. Reek would never have done that. Even Roose Bolton himself, last chapter, said, he does not have it in him to betray my son. Roose has erred. And this chapter perhaps reveals other miscalculations. The risks people are willing to take increase exponentially when alternatives are removed and death or extreme torment is the only other option. Yes, so by becoming Theon, he is able to behave in a way that Reek never would. One of the major themes of this chapter, Nina writes, is that, or is when death is preferable to going on living. Wyman Manderly asked the question sarcastically when it comes to Big Walder's murder. <laughs> it's better that he didn't grow up to be afraid. But he himself seems not to care too much about whether or not he makes it through upcoming events alive. With Theon, with Mance, with Wyman, we see these characters who have come to a point that it is worth putting themselves in a position where they could easily die, either because they've lived long enough and have done what they wanted, they accomplished their lives' works, or because they simply can't go on the way they have for whatever reason. And for the army headed their way, it's led by a man who doesn't seek death, but Stannis would surely die before yielding. That's kind of along the same lines. Quote, Day stole upon them just as Stannis had, unseen. Yeah. So right away, we're seeing what was set up last time with regard to the morale inside Winterfell. Things were really getting tense, infighting, anxiety, all the waiting, all that morale just in this state, sapped patience. Things come to a head. Theon notes that Ramsay in particular is in a bad mood, and that is scary by itself. Stay out of Ramsay's way when he's grumpy in the morning. He's th Theon thinks to himself, just the slightest provocation, someone could lose some skin. Then he's seen arguing with his father. Fat Walder's face shows fear. Uh, this is perhaps foreshadowing for Ramsay losing it completely and killing his father. Maybe, maybe. Of course, that isn't necessarily what's going to happen, but we're on the lookout for something like that. And of course, he's in a bad mood now. Wait till he finds out that Theon and Jane have escaped. That's only going to make him more upset, right? We just won't be around to see what happens because our window into Winterfell will be gone. We won't see the reaction. We're only going to hear about it later. Many of the men were up early waiting for an attack that's not actually imminent, while the rest of the men still weren't sleeping well because of the horns and drums that are the same source of their belief that the attack is about to happen. But as we discussed last time, it's a diversion by Moore's Umber to make them think exactly what they're thinking. So clearly it's working. 
But unfortunately for Theon, Jane, Abel, Mance, and the six commando women, the notion that Stannis is close by is fooling them too. It's part of the escape plan, and that's kind of a unfortunate side effect for Moore's. But fortunately, Moore's is pro-Stannis and anti-Bolton slash Frey. So if they get to him, he can in turn get them to Stannis, which is in fact what happens. But unfortunately, only two of these nine get there. In addition to the now grumpy Ramsay, a moment later, we have the major provocation in the death of Little Walder, which adds more provocation to everyone and everything. They're all more on edge now, especially with Wyman Manderley's (laughs) reaction to it. Like the rest of the murders during this stint at Winterfell, this one is calculated rather than a result of the tensions boiling over. As we mentioned last time, if our guests shared by many that Big Wilder kills his own cousin is accurate, then it is surely a case of existing frictions creating a perfect cover story. Why be so sure? Well, there's foreshadowing that we pointed to at the time, such as Big Wilder's claim that he's going to rule the twins one day. That was a while back, right? And his eerie understanding of the line of succession at such a young age, despite so many names, he knows the order of like 40 different phrase, right? But as I said, during Danny's chapter, his story is a bit weak, kind of like how Brown Ben Plum's story has some holes in it. Going to collect a gambling debt from other soldiers, already that sounds a little sketchy. After all, just like swords, these men carry their worldly wealth on their person. They might have some money back at home where they live, you know, in their cottage or whatever, in their village, but not on campaign. What, they don't have lockers? They don't have places they store stuff? So murdered by random White Harbor men? That just doesn't really make much sense either. Lord Wyman brought picked men, men prepared to die in one last battle, right? That's what we're operating on here. They're heading out into the snow to face death and maybe worse, suffering. So they're going to screw up their Lord's plans, their final plans over some money they can't even spend? Please, that does not make any sense. But that's nothing compared to what's probably an even bigger smoking gun, at least the way I see it. And a lot of y'all agree. A lot of us all seem to focus on this one same detail that I think is a bit of a smoking gun, if not a major one. Big Walder claims he found his brother or his cousin, but quote, his chest and arms and cloak were spattered with blood. That is the living one. Yet Hostine comes carrying the body and quote, the cold outside had frozen his blood, meaning the, the corpse. So if he found his cousin, as he claimed, the body would have already been frozen. So how does he have blood all over himself when he just found the body like that? How do you get blood all over you when you find a corpse that should be frozen? Like, (laughs) it doesn't really make much sense. He shoved the body under the snowdrift while the blood was still fresh, and that's how he got it all over him. And George even gives a second mention, the boy's gloves were caked with his cousin's blood. I mean, Hostine's isn't noted to have blood all over him, and he's the one who carried him. So if they both found him in the same state, why does the other one have blood all over him and Hostine doesn't? So, mm, doesn't add up. It does not make sense. The horses and dogs in the hall can smell the blood, and their reactions are a great stage setter for showing just how tense a moment this is. And at last, it's something that gets Roos Bolton to raise his voice. That's another sign that this is pretty serious. I mean, Farouz, the least emotional person, living person, we've seen in the entire cast of characters to show that his demeanor is shifting and breaking a little, that there's cracks in that facade. 
he's like the canary in the coal mine. If Roos is starting to get antsy, whoa, watch out. Because he's, he's perceptive and difficult to provoke. So if he thinks he's in danger, he probably is. Another sign is the repeated calls for music by the Boltons, which is a means of distraction and calming. Right there, just like trying to find ways to just get everyone to relax, even just a little bit. And Nina writes, the violent breakout between the Manderleys and the phrase is a sign of how little Roos can, has control over things, right? His whole mantra, as explained only a few chapters back, a few Theon chapters back, is a peaceful land, a quiet people. This is anything but that, right? Everyone's angry. They're fighting amongst themselves. Yeah, it's almost literally the polar opposite. They're not afraid of his retribution either, nearly as much. They're so angry that Roos isn't scaring them themselves anymore. And that's obviously what he relies on. And fittingly, there's so much uh, kind of reverse notions here. The biggest death in the castle is someone named Little Walder, though he's bigger than Big Walder. He was younger. Also figures that the biggest death would create the funniest quote about any of the deaths. Here we go. Wyman Manderley. So young, said Wyman Manderley. Though mayhaps this was a blessing. Had he lived, he would have grown up to be a fray. One of the more memorable, fantastic burns of the entire series. The phrase are so contemptible that we can laugh at the death of a child. It's amazing how that works, really. It's, it's a match for what we saw in the South from Jamie's chapter at River Run when Lord Piper levied a similar verbal hammering on the phrase present there. They're so hated that they kill each other. And that's most likely true even if Big Walder didn't kill his cousin because it appears Black Walder may have done so for some of his in the South. Standard disclaimer that a few of the phrases are decent, but none of the ones up here are, except maybe Lady Walda. We don't really know her that well. Manderley knows he can say this because of what Lady Dustin pointed out last time. Everyone hates the phrase. You wouldn't say this about the Boltons with all these Bolton loyalists around and with them being in charge, but to their in-laws and get away with it because everyone knows. Everyone knows how hated they are. Hostine's reaction to this, now that it, now that's boiling over this, is reacting. This is talk about tensions coming out. He almost kills Lord Wyman right then and there. And for all we know, the wound is bad enough that it eventually will. He yells out at his brother Merritt's son. Remember Merritt Frey from his own epilogue chapter in A Storm of Swords, our introduction to Lady Stoneheart. That's who the dead child is, his son. And well, this is Little Walter. has been with us since Clash of Kings. We've disliked him ever since, even though he's a child. And that really throws us for a loop because think about the fact that this is Winterfell, a child being laid before the Lord's a child's bloody body cloaked in pink frost. Contrast to the crimson cloaks of Rhaenys and Aegon. This is one of the biggest tragedies of the series. Not Little Walder's death specifically, but the death of children. And it's happening at Winterfell, the place where Ned Stark ruled. The man who, more than anyone, stood up for this value. You know, Danny is perhaps right there with him. Ned's the one who kicked that all off. And since then, it's one of the... Whenever it happens, it, we're reminded of it. Hosea, we have reason to think of her again. Her bones laid in front of Danny. Willem Lannister and Tion Frey laid at Rob Stark's feet after Rickard Karstark slew the prisoners. The Miller's boys that Theon had slain. Uh, it's a long list of, of kids, um, but even Roos, 
Man, again, lacking normal emotions, normal sentimentality. Even he recognizes that this is a grave crime. He understands it on an intellectual level, even if he doesn't feel it. And right on time, Roos gets a raven and plays it off like, oh, now is the time for this because of all this activity. But really, the raven is crucial. He wanted to send them out sooner. He wanted them to fight Stannis sooner, probably, given how things were coming to a head. But he didn't know where to send his men. He didn't know where Stannis was. How could he send the men out? We talked about that last time. So it's dark wings, dark words, but for Roos, because he's probably been fooled. And of course, for the men marching out, likely to fall into a, a lake. Stannis captures Roos's maester. Remember this from Theon's Winds of Winter chapter. And that maester is forced to reveal that the birds he's carrying with him don't go to the Dread Fort. They go to Winterfell. And that he's already revealed the location of the Crofters village to the Boltons. In other words, he confesses to sending the raven that we're seeing right here in this scene. So connect those dots. Connect those ravens. Stannis in that scene in The Winds of Winter says that he sends the maester away and will decide what to do later. And that, my fellow historians, is a major tenet of the idea that there's a trap waiting for the Frey army. Because this is 100% proof that Stannis knows they're coming. He may have suspected they were coming anyway. Now he knows it for sure. So part of that chapter is Stannis getting intel from Theon. He's like, well, how many men do you think they'll send? Will he send half his strength, a third? Who's going to come? Who's going to send? And so they talk about things like that. And let's also not forget how bad the snow still is. Theon notes that it only takes about 10 yards for the Great Hall to be invisible behind the wall of white blowing around them. This is part of why the plan, the extracting Jane, had a decent chance to succeed. Like, you could smuggle her out without anyone seeing, quite possibly. Interesting, too, that Theon Ponder's telling them the truth, right? He almost tells them, this is Jane, not Arya. But he decides against it. Probably because he's worried that they won't rescue her if they find out who she really is. But he needn't worry about that. I think Mance already knows. We've been over this a bit. It seems like Mance probably already knows who she is. Well, he doesn't know she's Jane, but he knows she's not Arya. He was at the feast back in A Game of Thrones, right? He knows the Stark look. He referred to Jon having it. Jane doesn't have it. Nor does she have the Tully look, which he would also know for the same reason. He was at the feast. He saw Catelyn. He saw Sansa. They have that distinct red hair, right? Jane doesn't look like either of them. She doesn't look like a Stark. She doesn't look like a Tully. And there's a number of ways where Mance could have talk to people who, to confirm that, like, that doesn't look like Arya. (laughs) So, uh, because we know there's lots of other people who are afraid to say it, but are feeling the same thing or thinking the same thing. Is that really Arya? So he had ways to verify it if he didn't already know 100% on his own. So you might say then, well, why the heck is he rescuing her? Well, real Arya or not, she is the source of Ramsay's claim to the castle. Not only that, maybe she can be used as proof that the Boltons were lying to the North. That's not as certain, but it could be on Mance's mind. Either way, there's reasons to get her out of there to throw off Bolton power. As for the crypts, we're kind of left hanging on that a little bit. I think what happened was that the idea was abandoned. Their plan was hiding the crypts until Stannis takes the castle, right? And then they can reveal themselves and be like, okay, we're safe now. Once they heard that the march was on, though, that they were going to meet Stannis in the field, that changed the plan. That's like, oh, crap, we got to get to Stannis first before they do, because, well, for one thing, Stannis might lose. (laughs) And 
they don't want to take that chance. Because if they get to Stannis before the battle even happens, Stannis will detach five men and send them off to somewhere safer. Or at least they could be thinking that. This, by the way, is part of the reason I lean towards Stannis being in on Melisandre's switcheroo plot uh, regarding Rattlemance. If not, Mance wouldn't be so eager to flee into the arms of the man that passed a sentence of immolation on him. God, <laughs> like, oh, let's go flee to the guy that was going to burn me to death. Flaying might actually be one of the few things worse than being burned alive. I don't know. But I think if you're Mance Raider and your choices are burned alive, flayed alive, I think you'd look for option three there, right? <laughs> if you had to choose, what would you choose? Damn, I don't know, man. I, you're, I think there burning, is a good probably. Point. I think the smoke, I think, like the smoke might knock you yeah, out. Yeah, I think burning you. for sure for me. Talk about awful choice though, right? Like, yeah, I think damn. burning, the more I think about it and the smoke, yeah. I think it would be a little faster. Yeah. <laughs> you're welcome, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Before he can pull off this escape though, Theon, he has to finish the transformation to becoming Theon again. He admits that the Starks were essentially his family and that he betrayed his own men and worse. The denials are gone. And that's important because that's part of reclaiming who he was. He can't just deny what he's done. He can't deny who that is. Part of uh, the process of admitting who Theon is is admitting Theon's bad deeds. It's almost like a... The allure, part of the allure of Reek for him was abjuring himself of the responsibility of what Theon did. Because as he thinks about it, yes, the torture from Ramsay is there's nothing like that. But he thinks about how the guilt of Theon is almost as bad. And so by being Reek, he was able to not face Theon's guilt. So he has to make that switch. He has to gain that courage. And part of the reason he, he gains some of this courage from this recovery of much of his identity, but from Bran's encouragement, which might indicate that was the whole point of Bran speaking to him through the tree was this encouragement. Now, let's think about it from Bran's perspective. I doubt Bran is fooled into thinking this is Arya, right? He's got this extrasensory perception and all that. But he does know Jane. He would recognize Jane on sight and might want to help her. Plus, ditto the reasons to get her away from Ramsay in terms of the claim to Winterfell. That's also something Bran may understand. So it's important, specifically, Theon thinks Reek could not allow these people to escape because they are Ramsay's prisoners. Theon can do that. He thinks to himself, Reek could not allow that. But the old gods had known him, had called him Theon. Joe writes, the true way to that moment in the gods what is revealed. Bran, speaking through the heart tree, was the catalyst to Theon thinking of himself as Theon. He's the reason for the chapter title change for this incredibly important shift in Theon's soul. And it pushes back against the, uh, the notion that you can't change things through uh, the werewoods like um, with just simple speaking. It may, uh, and that might be a clue to him affecting the past. This is just affecting the present. But all he did was say his name. It doesn't seem like the most overwhelmingly powerful supernatural thing. He just said Dion's name a few times, right? But it really, it really resonated because it, he thought it was the old gods. He thought it was the gods speaking to him. And man, if you think the gods are speaking to you, sincerely think the gods are speaking to you. Well, even someone in a deep hole of trauma is going to react to that, right? It's just so incredible. Again, returning to him taking up his responsibilities and thinking of his past and, and his guilt, 
this really important moment where he thinks of the person he was closest to at long last. And Rob, Rob, who had been more a brother to Theon than any son born of Balon Greyjoy's loins, murdered at the Red Wedding, butchered by the phrase, I should have been with him. Where was I? I should have died with him. Rob, who was slain in part because of Theon's actions, even though he's, he maybe hasn't fully addressed that, he doesn't necessarily realize that part of the reason the Red Wedding happened was because of the loss of Winterfell and the deaths of Bran and Rickon, perceived, obviously. And yeah, and he realizes that would have been a worthy death for him. If he had been with Rob at the Red Wedding, that would have been worthy. Yes, never mind that the Red Wedding probably wouldn't have happened had <laughs> it not been for Theon. But still, it's a, it's a worthy place for Theon to, to land within his mind to say, yes, that would have been a worthy place for me to die alongside my best friend. That would have been noble. We've had similar thoughts from John, thinking he should have died with Rob. It seems like this is confirmation, maybe not 100% confirmation, but man, 99% without being 100% sure. It seems like this is maybe the chapter in which we, we learn that Fat Weld was pregnant which could really kick off the Roos Ramsey extravaganza <laughs> struggle that Roos may not see as a struggle that Ramsey will. As you may recall, a, a while back, a few months back, I did a poll, and about two-thirds of you all believe that Ramsey will kill Roos rather than the other way around, or that Ramsey will outlive Roos, or vice versa. So we're on the lookout for clues as to what might trigger that, or what might signify that, or what might foreshadow that. And certainly Fat Wilder's pregnancy is a major, major option for that. Uh, the second half of this chapter, Nina writes, almost works as a sort of spiritual undoing of Theon's taking of Winterfell. He had taken Winterfell with a small group of people using his extremely intimate knowledge of the castle. It's just an expert at the place he lived there for a long time. So, of course, he knows it super well. Well, and he's kills two Starks, you know, allegedly while doing it. And here, it's kind of the opposite. Using his intimate knowledge of Winterfell to get out of it, to save people. And it's got the same vibes of false Starks, right? He lied to tell people he did kill Starks and now we've got this fake Stark that he's in on it, <laughs> but still wants to save her. It's a really cool reversal of roles here. Even Theon doesn't realize <laughs> the symbolism uh, the undoing of his own deeds. It's pretty cool. And as far as the action, woo, it's really good, isn't it? I mean, it's a lot of the chapter. It's most of the chapter. The tension and just the little, this is them waiting to fill the pails of water. They're just like, can you imagine? They're just like slowly filling the pails of water. Theon's like, okay, no one noticed those girls. Those girls aren't acting proper. The girls would be talkative by trying to be unnoticed they're actually drawing attention to themselves. And he's just like thinking, he's like, oh my God, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. But he still thinks on his feet really well. His lies are good. The things he says to defray their suspicion, their quality, they're delivered in a calm voice. He says all the right things. He's good at it. And that's neat because he thinks on his feet too in, when they're threatening him. Frenya at one point's like, say that again, I'll kill you. And he's like, no, you won't. You need me for this plan. I'm part of the plan. You can't kill me now. Please. You need me to lie. You need me to do all this stuff. 
it goes to show you, you just can't scare this guy now. The only thing that scares him is like Ramsey. It's, he's using that. He's using his newfound understanding, his newfound loss of fear to, as a great weapon. Uh, it's almost uh, like he's learned to be a little bit courageous because he's seen the worst and, and only the worst scares him now. So the Spearwives. Alas, we barely knew ye. Brenya's apparent death by agreeing to block the bridge to get by them all time was worthy of song. That's epic, right? And, and Holly, she's the most certainly dead of them all because she was shot twice. Squirrel was the fake, fake Arya who stayed behind in the bedroom. She maybe escaped, probably not though. Climbing out the window, maybe she did that, but actually getting out of the castle once the alarm was up, I don't know. I, I don't have high hopes for them escaping. A lot of the... A lot of it depends on the veracity of the pink letter, which we'll, of course, cover in John 13. The letter claims all six of them were captured. So if someone other than Ramsey wrote it, it could be a lie. But if Ramsey wrote it, then that's probably that, I suppose. Not that Ramsey isn't capable of lying, and there probably are lies in the pink letter no matter who wrote it. But if Ramsey's aware of the six women and he wrote it, then surely he actually did awful things to them. So they may, he man's really maybe wearing their skins. Uh, yeah, let's hope not. But it's entirely possible. Also, really neat how this ties into the Bale the Bard story. Of course, this has been major Bale the Bard vibes this whole time. We talked about it. When Bale the Bard was new in the, in the books, we talked about it before that even. Bale is, of course, an anagram for Abel. And in the Bale the Bard story, recall... The son of Bale and Brandon Stark's daughter died when one of his lords peeled the skin off of him and wore him, wore him for a cloak. Exactly what Theon fears will happen to Mance and the Spearwives uh, if they're caught. And, ex- and if the pink letter is accurate, that is what happened. So, yeesh. So I'm really impressed by the escape from Winterfell. It's so exciting. But I think there's an argument to be made that Theon's escape from his own mental prison, from being Reek, is just as impressive, if not more so, even if we got to give credit to Bran. Um, Well, you know, escaping from Winterfell physically wasn't all Theon either. There was nine people involved in that. So one other kind of odd moment here that a couple of y'all noticed, Nina actually wrote about it, so we'll go with her take here. Theon smiles at Rowan, of course. This is when she threatens him. And... Nina points out this is the first time Theon has smiled this entire book. And he thinks how he stopped smiling because of Ramsay taking a a hammer to his mouth for smiling. But that's what Theon was known for, right? Theon was a smiler. (laughs) He named his horse Smiler. People always remarked on how Theon had these like arrogant smiles. It was his thing. So it's an important like detail to him becoming himself again because this is the kind of thing that Theon wouldn't even subconsciously realize necessarily. But about Rowan, she's oddly disgusted and defensive about Theon saying winter is coming. She says, those are Lord Eddard's words. Don't use those. You turncloak, you kinslayer. Now, wildlings hate kinslayers. Wildlings hate turncloaks too, although a little bit less so probably. But why is she so upset about the stark words being used like that? Why does a free folker care about the stark words being said like that. So that, that, that starts the conspiracy theory clock ticking and gets us thinking about that. There's one maybe theory that might fit. 
recall that Crow Food had a daughter stolen by Free Folk a long time ago. This could be the one, right? But it's pretty random. There's not enough detail to connect them that she is roughly the right age. But uh, <laughs> it's kind of a stretch, but it could fit. It may end up lining up later, but let's not go too far with that because the details are scant. Still, it's an odd moment when she shows a strange connection to northern, south of the wall beliefs rather than north of the wall standard beliefs. Yeah, in the chat, Nina also points out that she can be a stolen Northman's daughter. It doesn't have to be this one. Yeah, we know that is a thing that happens fairly regularly. So that's a good point. Yeah, it could just be some other, yeah, any Northern daughter. Tree Girl notes an interesting detail here. Theon thinks about how valuable it is to be able to fight on spiral staircase and how hard it is to fight up a spiral staircase. It's kind of a random thought one that's easy to pass over, might be relevant to Winterfell being invaded, like undead coming up the stairs and things like that and uh, foreshadowing of fighting inside Winterfell. So I think Tree Girl's probably right about that, that it might be uh, a little bit of hint towards that. Sophia points out a, a related note that the maze of ice-walled trenches is described, which is also maybe foreshadowing for the coming battles of uh, how the defenses of Winterfell will somewhat work for the attackers in ways that they would normally be great defense points. These trenches and things like that might actually, because they freeze over, which might still be a great deterrent against human foes, might not work so well against the dead. It's only chapter 52 here, but Theon's arc in the book is done. Joining Bran and Davos, among other characters with only one chapter, who are also finished, like Melisandre, we will return to him for his one Winds of Winter chapter. And then, of course, back to him when the Winds of Winter is actually out. And we have more chapters from him. And, of course, we don't know how many that will be. For all we know, he's not going to have more chapters. But I would suspect that one Winds of Winter chapter isn't his only remaining chapter. So we've probably got more than one more Theon chapter in the future. One more note here. Euron said to Victorian that maybe the Maester was lying about people flying. But Theon and Jane can say... They've tried. Meanwhile, it's Danny who has the next chapter, and she shows them how flying is done. Daenerys 9, the one in Daznak's pit, a.k.a. how to train your Drogon. At the start, I mentioned how there's a buildup of action. This is one of the biggest moments of the book, rivaling the birth of the dragons back in the Game of Thrones, but with death and destruction and not just a big miracle which is cool in its own way, but certainly different. It's also filled with Danny reflecting on how it all got to this point, which is fitting for her to be thinking back to all the way back to the beginning when the dragons were born and how it's not going at all like she imagined. But her doubts are suddenly blown away by the beating of leathern wings. And it starts with a subtle reference to what's coming. The sky was a merciless blue without a wisp of cloud in sight. An empty sky from the bleakest white snows in John's chapter, or Theon's chapter, rather, John's next, <laughs> to the opening blue skyline here. Why focus on the fact that the sky is empty? Because soon it will be filled with a very familiar, very awesome, very epic shape. Usually uh, a blue sunny sky carries positive connotations, no danger of clouds blocking the sun or ruining the day with rain. But here in Marine, the blue sky means more heat because it's such a hot place 
It's a desert. Clouds would actually be respite. Rain is not very likely in these parts. And of course, the real heat coming from the sky is going to be Drogon, in addition to the expected extreme heat of the sun in Slaver's Bay. This setting is really hellish, as usual. I mean, it's always that way. But we are reminded because, well, hell is about to break loose as well. And we actually begin uh, early in the chapter with Masande showing more wisdom, trying to persuade Danny not to go. You don't need to open the fighting pits. She knows Danny doesn't really want to do it. She knows that she was talked into it. At this point, it's probably too late. If she was going to change her mind, she needed to say so before, you know, all the crowds are already going there and filing in. Of course, that's not going to stop her from, from ending it or saying, I want to leave <laughs> during because it just, she just hates it so much. Before we get there, there's this ominous moment where a, a palanquin bearer collapses in the heat and we get a, a chance to debate how things are changing around Marine. Danny is not pleased with this. She's like, this doesn't seem much better. Hisdar argues that, look, in the old days, that person would have collapsed and been left there or beaten. Like, yeah, it just goes to show how bad things were that he was just lying there instead of being beaten until Danny ordered someone to help. And so how, it's only a little bit better, right? This, these aren't the kind of changes that you can take heart in that they'll stick because it's so easy for them to just go right back to it. It's not like people were rushing to help. It's not like the compassion was all, all, all of a sudden present here. Old habits die hard and a bunch of freed slaves see one of their number collapse and they still think about it in, in the old way, the old terms of, of how it was recently where they can't help you. They're not allowed to. It's not normal. They don't have that cultural value. It hasn't been instilled in them because They've only been non-slaves for a few months and they were full slaves for their whole life or most of it. On one hand, yeah, it is a little better, but you can kind of see why this isn't really great reform. This is such a minor change that it could easily just get swallowed up and things could backslide to the way they were. You need larger changes to maybe feel like this is actual progress. So, it's an, it was a bit of an interesting debate amongst commenters on how much progress this actually represents. No one seems to indicate, no one was arguing that it's a lot of progress. But some people, for example, Joe argued that maybe this is at least something, that it is a little bit of value, not, maybe not reason for great optimism, but it's something. Whereas Nina champions the idea that this is almost nothing at all and hardly worth celebrating because it's still so far from where things need to be and like I said, it could easily just backslide to the old ways in a minute and as if nothing's been gained at all. Amongst this scene also, there's more jockeying for position. We already talked about how Hisdar immediately jumps in, dismisses the shave paid as commander of the Brazen Beasts, sort of throwing his weight around. And there's more of these little power games, jockeying for position. Danny gives an order to help this guy who falls over. And then his daughter just repeats the order. Like, oh, they're not going to do it unless the man says it. So it's kind of like, he's kind of like absconding her power a bit, like jumping in front. He, he's trying to basically emphasize that he's on her level. Basically, yeah, it's, it's squabbling for primacy, which is something these nobles do their whole lives. They're all about prestige and 
who sits where at the banquet, things like that. This is all rolled up into their, into their self-image and power games. If we fast forward to when he gets angry with Danny telling him that he's broken the deal by having dwarves slaughtered without their consent in the arena, and he gets mad for a minute, Joe writes, it's kind of like a, he's a bit of a spoiled brat there. He's used to getting everything he wants. And now that he's married, he thinks, you know, I'm the man. I get to have what I want. She's got to get in line. But no, that is not how it works. Danny is, is not going to give up so easily. Not going to be pushed in line. She's sticking to her guns. The arrangement was, is already being encroached on. She already is upset with the fine print in this deal and how it's being encroached. And so she's definitely not going to allow this one to be pushed aside. People's lives are at stake. Also, it's just an insult to her personally. They're just like ignoring her commands. We've been to Daznak's before, sort of. The first use of it that we saw directly was the 163 executed slavers in retaliation for the 163 executed slave children pointing the way to Marine. That was done here in the, in the pit. And the idea of the, the gladiatorial combat, the pit fights, it's so disgusting to her. I mean, it's just pretty disgusting to us, I would assume, too. Making sport of, gaining pleasure from, being entertained by death and suffering. I mean, this is a huge piece of evidence, perhaps even more than slavery itself, that this society is, is maybe beyond fixing, at least not within a generation or certainly not within weeks or months. And it's not just the nobility. This is part of what's dawning on Danny is that she knows the nobility of Marine and Yunkai and Astapor were terrible, but now there's tens of thousands of people cheering for blood here, and, and most of them are middle class or lower class. So uh, she realizes that they're kind of all like this to some degree, and that's just a very sinking feeling. And they call her mother, and she just she thinks that's just not true at all. Danny let the sound wash over her. I'm not your mother, she might have shouted back. I am the mother of your slaves of every boy who ever died upon these sands whilst you gorged on honeyed locusts. Resnack tells her, look, the crowd loves you, yet she knows it's this they love, the pit, the fighting, the entertainment. And she's right, 100% clear-sighted here. This is where she shines, right? She wasn't able to perceive how she was getting the wool pulled over her with, her, uh, with the deal-making that led to this. But when it comes down to it, she understands. She understands their attitude. She understands hers. This is where she's not confused at all. This is where she is as perceptive as anyone. She wants killing to be a last resort. Yet here it is being celebrated as a pastime. How do you compromise with that? The red sands drank his blood. The wind's final words. This crowd screamed its approval. It's so simply put. It's three lines Two sentences. The red sands drank his blood. The wind his final words. The crowd screamed its approval. George is really good about making it simple when simplicity tells it all and really good at writing flowery poetic language when that's appropriate. He seems to choose the right brush for the canvas every time. Because, man, that hits hard and it's really simple. It just explains... Why Danny hates it all. Yeah, like why would she approve that? Why would she scream her approval at that? And why would she want to be associated with people who find pleasure in such things? 
And here we get the, the jousting dwarves. We're not doubting their identity, of course. We know who it is. But just to boost the scene and boost the moment and to remind us, we get Robert Brathian and, and a Lannister uh, set up to joust. And we don't see the scene through Tyrion eyes directly. We get it afterwards. So it's important, as Joe notes here, to think about what Tyrion must be imagining here. It must be really bad. He must hate this. Remember how much we talked about him hating to be a spectacle? How it was imbued in him by his father not to be a spectacle? Well, he's j- joust, a jousting dwarf. A joke in front of tens of thousands of people. So him personally, Penny probably was cool with it. Like she was brought up to to want to be doing such things, to be the center of attention in a good way for her. But this is embarrassing for Tyrion. And I don't, I don't know if he's, it's been such a short amount of time for him to accept this. So it probably is really difficult for him. So as far as a few of the actual duels go, there's some symbolism in a few of them, some foreshadowing in a few of them. Uh, the spotted cat, another sort of friend of his Dars. It's a, a, one of the examples where it inspires her to think that maybe I set my sights too high. Maybe she, she thinks to herself, perhaps I can't make my people good, but I can try to make them less bad. That's a reasonable attitude. And it goes to show she isn't, doesn't think in absolutes. We have to be very careful to, to not fall into the trap of thinking that what we saw on the TV show is who Danny's going to be. Don't let that happen. Keep that in the back of your mind as like a frame of reference. Sure. It's like something that we should be considering. It's part of the debate. But book Danny is so much more nuanced, so much more sympathetic, so much more empathetic, so much more thoughtful because you can't be inside a TV character's head. So, of course, book characters are more thoughtful. But Danny's thoughtful even compared to the run of A Song of Ice and Fire characters. And so she's trying to find other solutions. She's trying to reset her expectations. It's a very mature thing to do. And again, the empathy shines through. She's like, well, I'm not just going to give up. I got to do the best I can. And if I can only save if I can save 10,000 people, I'd rather save 10,001 or 10,002, but saving 10,000 is a good thing. She should be at least proud of herself for that and not just always look on the bad side and think, well, I, she's focused on that one she couldn't save instead of the 10,000 she did save. Kraz eats a heart, right, after beating his foe. And Danny, of course, can't help but think of eating a heart herself and how it didn't save Rago. And that leads her to think of Mary Mazdur. Three treasons shall you know. She was the first. Dora was the second. Brown Ben Plum, the third. Was she done with betrayals? (laughs) I don't know if Danny earnestly believes this. I think she's just kind of running over the thoughts in her mind. But if she actually believes that, that is a serious, sweet summer child moment. I just praised her maturity. But that is, (laughs) come on, Danny. You're not done with betrayals. Of course not. And probably all three of those are not true. Probably none of those are the three betrayals. I don't think Brown Ben Plum's betrayal counts because he's going to switch back and all she's going to end up losing is some money and pride. So that doesn't really add up to much considering some of these others. I don't really think Jorah's either because Jorah's didn't really go anywhere either. And so, and Miri Mazdur, I don't know about that either. Was she ever really hers? So probably not. Anyway, there's definitely more betrayals on the way 
whether I nailed that explanation or not. But she's not too far off thinking about Quaith. What was that line about three mounts? One to bed, one to dread, one to love, right? Surely this is the mount to dread, yeah? Let's have some love for the glory of Drogon. Above them all, the dragon turned dark against the sun. His scales were black, his eyes and horns and spinal plates blood red. Ever the largest of her three, in the wild, Drogon had grown larger still. His wings stretched 20 feet from tip to tip, black as jet. He flapped them once as he swept back above the sands, and the sound was like a clap of thunder. The boar raised his head, snorting, and flame engulfed him. Black fire shot with red. This, just on its own, is one of the major, major moments and payoffs of the series. Ever since we read the final chapter of A Game of Thrones, we've been waiting, hoping that we'd see dragons grow to adulthood, get to see what they're going to do. Here we go. It wasn't, I mean, since it's a reread, you obviously knew it was coming, but if you think back to the first time, if you had seen the show first, you may have seen this coming because it's a different moment, but it happens in the same spot. It's Daznak's pit in both cases. But if you read the books before you saw the show, this was pretty out of nowhere. I did not see this coming. I did not, there was nothing in my mind preparing me for this. It was just like, oh, holy crap, Drogon, wow. And as Nina writes, if you think about it symbolically, as we discussed in Danny 8, this sort of represents Daenerys' deepest sense of herself. He's not only black and compared to Balerion, lining up with Danny being kind of like Aegon the Conqueror, getting those vibes. Black and red coloring, right? It's body and fire. I mean, he's literally a living symbol of House Targaryen. Get the colors. And dragons don't plant trees. He's not there to make peace. He's not there to facilitate this peace deal. He blows it up. The stampede is part of the excuse the Yunkai used to extend the hostage situation to make more demands because Yurkaz Zoyunzak is run over by 10,000 of his closest friends, as Tyrion puts it. In addition, there's a strong sense of power. It's, it's almost described, well, not almost. A lot of you noted it's quite sexual. But it's not like a gratification, a pleasure type of sexuality. It's a power. It's the freedom. It's the control that's implied by such a thing. It's closer to how she was with Drogo on Drogon here rather than this mother-child relationship. She's wielding a whip even, which doesn't exactly dismiss the sexual vibes. <laughs> the last lines of the chapter include, quote, Danny could feel the heat of him between her thighs. And yes, she thought, yes, now, now, do it, do it. Take me, take me, fly. Except for the word fly, that's all, you know, could, could definitely fit in a bedroom. How about dragon's blood? Wow, it melts the spear partially. Ooh, that is incredible. And a less happy wow moment comes from seeing Hisdar's reaction. He's like, got this greedy look in his eyes and he wants the dragon killed. It's a very, very telling moment because Danny's right next to him, seeing his face enraptured and, and seeing his desire for the death of a dragon. Of course, pretty quickly, she's running towards the dragon and has barely has time to think about that. But it's still... Uh, Quite a moment. It's not really how I would have predicted his daughter to react. Danny thinks she's never been so certain of anything when she's approaching Drogon and, and has this concept she knows what to do. Very similar to the certainty she felt before the dragons hatched regarding, you know, how to hatch them. 
her notion of setting up the pyre with Drogo and Miri and the eggs, that was like a flash of inspiration from beyond. And she, but she was so sure of it. And it's kind of similar here. Just like she was drawn to that, she felt the life within the dragons. She's drawn to Drogon. Instinctive might be a good word for it, but there's uh, probably some supernatural involved too. We just don't know how to describe that. Certainly lines like, Danny and Drogon screamed together as one. Certainly implies a connection that might be beyond psychological. If you want to go a bit farther, perhaps we should think like John and his bond with ghosts. Recall that John's senses become more potent when he kind of accidentally slips into ghosts. His sense of smell gets heightened really powerfully for a moment. In this scene, Danny has that moment where the heat and the blood and the noise overwhelm her. And it's just like so much. It's easy enough to imagine that's just a normal, non-supernatural reaction. It is really intense. Heat, blood, Danny hates it. But it might be a little bit of a light skin changer bond. Not a skin changer bond, but some sort of 10% version of that connection where they do feel a little bit of what the other's feeling. They don't have mind control or they can't see through each other's eyes, that kind of thing, but there's still a connection of some kind. Something milder, something a lot milder. And Danny really, really wanted to leave, right? She wanted to get the hell out of there and here comes Drogon to take her the hell out of there. Is, did Drogon feel that? Yeah, maybe, maybe. But also, if we're looking for non-magical explanations, there's a huge amount of noise and blood. So that could easily be the reason the dragon was drawn, right? That makes a ton of sense. And that noise and blood was in the vicinity of Drogon's mother right there. So we assume he has some sense of her, can smell her. He has a great sense of smell, maybe recognizes her by sight. Uh, Not to mention the major symbolic resonance here as well. I mean, it's a Robert Baratheon-like figure that we went into that detail in previous chapters, especially the last one. Barcena Blackhair, killed by a boar, who's then killed by a dragon. And not just any dragon, of course, a black and red dragon who breathes red and black fire. So we have symbolic dethroning of Robert Baratheon by a dragon here. Where are the lions? <laughs> yeah, there's no lions there. Uh, sorry, lions, no recognition for you. You only get your moment before where they almost had you eaten. You need to say that, like, where are the turtles? <laughs> where are the turtles? Where, where are, are the lions? So we almost had a lion eaten by lions. That would have been pretty symbolic. But we're, I think we're glad that Tyrion and Penny weren't eaten by lions. George even nudges us towards noticing the symbolic parallel of the boar and Robert and the dragon by actually having Danny think about Robert. <laughs> like, she thinks, I wonder if the boar that killed Robert was as big as that one. <laughs> Which is another sign of, like, empathy from her. Like, empathy for her enemy. That's really impressive from her. Like, she, she before was thinking of Robert as the usurper, and Viserys brought her up thinking he was, like, the worst man in the world. Yet here she is, like, wondering what he felt when he faced this boar. Like, that's really special to have that level of empathy for your enemy, especially at her age, amidst all this hatefulness. She hates where she is, yet she's still having empathy. It's pretty cool. Nina also notes a little historical note here. Uh, this would have made the third time that Lannisters and real lions didn't mix. Not only did Tyrion's own grandfather almost get killed and eaten by a lioness, remember, that's how the Cleganes became the Cleganes. And, but according to legend, Lorien the first Lannister, fed King Morgan Bainfort to his lions, only to have those lions break out later and kill Lorien's sons. 
Karma. Karma, karma. Karma lines. Not karma chameleons. Karma lines. And mice. That was, that made me laugh so much I tossed my mouse onto the <laughs> ground. Because <laughs> I was imagining karma chameleon. Karma chameleon. Small note here as well. Barristan getting set up, of course, because Barristan's about to be a POV. He complains about the brazen beasts and their mask. He doesn't like the fact that Danny is guarded by people who he doesn't know. Makes a lot of sense. As a bodyguard, having unknown people around the person you're guarding is a huge leak, a huge potential source of uh, a problem, right? Like it would only take one person that he doesn't know hiding behind one of those masks, getting close to Danny, and that's that. So... I would agree with Barristan there, not being a security expert myself. It seems like a pretty straightforward uh, issue. Especially with Skaha's dismissal, that makes it even worse. So this is a good setup because, of course, Barristan and Skaha's are going to be working together shortly. Speaking about masks and costumes, well, how about floppy ears? She took her tokar off as well. The pearls rattled softly against one another as she unwound the silk. Khaleesi, Erie asked, what are you doing? Taking off my floppy ears. Huge symbolic moment, right? Before Drogon arrives, she's stripping off this symbolism of Marine. She's taking off the floppy ears. She's like, I'm done with this. And then a few minutes later, it's just emphasized by Drogon's arrival. It shows how things are changing, how things have come to a head. She's like, this is the peace deal I find myself in. No, not going to work. I don't know what's coming next. It's not going to remain in this status quo. That's for darn sure. And, and other people complain. Like, Isdar is like, don't do that. Don't take your floppy ears off. Because, of course, the floppy ears are a big part of his power. Isdar's power <laughs> is ruling through her. So he wants her to kind of keep that attitude, keep the, the face up. Let's talk about the locusts. The poisoned locusts. I have become convinced over the long term that Skahaz did. Skahaz poisoned the locusts. I was kind of on Team Hisdar doing it or one of Hisdar's people doing it, maybe without his knowledge. But there's a lot of problems with that theory. And there's a lot of things pointing to Skahaz. For one thing, I mentioned earlier in this episode, Danny's eating habits. When we brought up Wyman Manderley and <laughs> being gone for an hour to go to the bathroom. Danny barely eats. It's a recurring Part of her chapter, she's like, I'll have like two bites of olive, one sip of wine, done for the day. <laughs> if you're going to poison Danny, choosing the locusts is a really bad option, right? That she's just so unlikely to not eat that, even with his dar suggesting it. She's just not interested and she's not likely to be. Anyone who's paid any attention to her eating habits knows that there's like a 1% chance at most she's eating one of them. So it's a terrible idea. If you're going to poison Danny, wine. She does drink plenty of wine. She's not like a drunk or anything, obviously. She, we don't see her get tipsy. I can't even think of her being drunk, not even once. That would be about one of the only options you have. So that's a pretty big deal because it's a big leak in the plan that you, you would think she would eat this. It's quite possible that the, the locusts were intended for his dar. And that's why Skahas would do it. You might think, why would Skahaz want to kill Danny? Well, as I just indicated, I don't think anyone was trying to kill Danny because the locusts are such a bad choice for that. The evidence that Hisdar is guilty 
is partly based on the fact that, well, he has, he has uh, motivation to do. He has a motive. Get rid of Danny and he can be king by himself. That's clear, okay? So it's part of why he makes, it's also part of why he makes a good scapegoat because of that fact. Scott has brings that up later too. But the fact that Hisdar says, I like these, these poisoned, I like these poison locusts. I like these locusts, this hot and spicy. That's evidence that they know he likes it. This isn't necessarily evidence he's trying to get Danny to eat them. It's a known delicacy that he likes. People already have witnessed his eating habits. And they're like, oh, Hisdar likes those. Let's poison those. I, that fits way better to me. And why would Scott has want to kill Hisdar? Well, we've been over that. Scott has replaced, was replaced by his Dar's cousin, job taken away from him. And we talked before that about how the two kind of see each other as kill or be killed situation. Skahaz thinks he's got to kill them and uh, his Dar knows that Skahaz wants to kill him. So it makes sense that they would go after each other, that one would go after the other. And, and again, when you kill someone, this is another huge part of it. This is something that Nina explained it really well to me as we were talking about this. This is an angle I had missed before. All the other poisonings throughout A Song of Ice and Fire include planning a scapegoat, right? Tyrion was planned to be the scapegoat for the poisoning of Joffrey. The Tyrells and, and Littlefinger seemed to work that out in advance. That's the whole point of the hairnet for Sansa. They could pin it on those two, right? That was planned in advance. Same goes for John Aaron. They poisoned John Aaron. They pin it on the Lannisters. We find out later it was Lysa and Littlefinger. All these guys concluded that as part of their planning, and it's pretty easy to see why. Then why did that not happen here? You could say, well, it did happen here. His Dar, he tried to pin it on other people. He talked about it. You know, he's like, no, it was, uh, it was the others. It was them. It wasn't me, you know. He doesn't do that, though, until Barristan confronts him. It was only like, a, I don't know, it wasn't me. It was probably them. The scapegoat is something that comes out right away. When you're trying to scapegoat someone, you don't wait. You don't wait till people start asking questions. You put that out right away so people head for the scapegoat immediately. Again, Big Walder did it too. He's like, the White Harbor men, it must have been them, <laughs> right? There's always a scapegoat right away. You don't wait on that. And there's no scapegoat here until his darge got a sword at his throat. He doesn't start naming names until he's like, uh, uh. He would have scapegoated someone way before that if he had been the one doing it, I think. So that's a really strong argument. I find that very convincing. And it kind of leaves us with the shave paint because, well, if, it, if they weren't targeting Danny, that already is huge. That already implies something very different going on here. And once you get away from Danny being the target, you realize that it Almost had to be his dar, the one guy who expressed an interest in the food that was poisoned. Yes, it turned out to be Strong Belwas, and, and I did see one or two people suggest maybe Strong Belwas was the target. I guess that's possible. That's how I see things. We'll obviously see later. It's a, it's a great fit. There's a lot of parallels between Skahaz and Littlefinger, by the way. And Littlefinger, of course, you know, being the controller of the city watch. Littlefinger shaves his beard when he gets elevated to a higher title which is exactly what Shave Tate does when he's made one of Danny's counselors. He shaves, you know, the old to symbolize that he's leaving behind the old ways of Marine. Yeah, uh, Littlefinger uh, did, you know, the same thing. Arranged a poisoning of someone and tried to pin it on someone else. So uh, keep that in mind, y'all. You're welcome to your own theories, as always. You never have to listen to me about things that aren't certain. But that is where we're at. 
So why does the tattered prince want Pentos? Why didn't he just accept being Prince of Pentos when they offered it to him? Well, because that was under the old rules of, well, if the first year of your rule doesn't go well, we will kill you. So the tattered prince is like, I do want Pentos, but without that, we kill you condition. I just want it with the, I get to decide what happens no matter what condition. So it does make sense when you look at it that way. Danny and by extension, Barristan are wary of offering the Tattered Prince Pentos. They do eventually do so. They do eventually. Barristan's like, okay, fine. Yeah, Pentos. And Danny was wary about that because of Illyria. Illyria is one of her benefactors. And she's like, well, I don't want to give the town of my benefactor away to this guy, the sellsword captain. What's that going to do to my ally? But is Danny going to care about protecting Illyria's interests when she finds out what, what else has been happening in the background, perhaps through Tyrion? perhaps through, you know, about what's happening with Aegon, who they're really helping all along. Like, Tyrion is going to be the only one talking to her about this. Illyria is not going to have a chance to plead his case, probably. At least not till later, if at all. And Tyrion, being Tyrion, is probably going to be very convincing about it. And he's going to be right. I mean, he's not going to be lying. He's going to be telling the truth. He's going to be like, yeah, their plan all along was, to, you were the second fiddle. You were the backup plan. They never, they thought you were going to die. And Illyrio does flat out say that. He's like, we thought she was going to die on the Dithraki Sea. We had no idea what kind of person she was. Let's see, uh, Gogor versus Bellaquo was one of the uh, big pit fights that was scheduled that people were arguing over, betting on. But hey, it never happened because Drogon uh, interrupted. So that's good because I didn't want them to kill each other. I don't like pit fights. And they end up being part of the squad that helps break the siege of Yunkai or of Marine by the Yunkish. Constantina Lebensis says, do you have any particular theories slash views about how the Valyrians slash Targaryens were controlling their dragons? Because it does not seem exactly like skin changing, but it's close. A couple comments from other people here. Dornish Dame says, Danny and Drogon screaming at the same time with a spear in the neck actually reminded me of Varamir and the dog from the prologue. Very good call, Dornish Dame. I didn't think of that. Very good. Uh, Bran Winslow says, I always wonder about the level of their connection because I mean, when Targs of Generations passed through their dragons to specific locations, what did they do? Yeah. That's a good call as well. Yeah, so that's why I kind of put math to it because we can't get specific, but I'm like, yeah, 10%, it's something like that. The 10% skin change or bond, it's not nearly as direct or clear, but there's something going on. I think that the fact that Valyrians or some Targaryens, some of the dragon riding families actually had actual dragon blood magically in them is part of it because there's a lot of evidence for that. Their additional, not immunity, their additional resistance to disease and their tolerance of heat the fact that every once in a while, a Targaryen is born with weird dragon-like features. So, yeah, I think they have actual blood of the dragon. When they say they're the blood of the dragon, there's a, there's a grain of truth to that. It's not just a metaphor. So I think that's part of it, because the dragons sense that they're related, but also think there's magic involved. And as we saw, whips and horns can be used as well. Dragons can respond to strength. Like a lot of real-world animals, they fall in line to the strongest. And, of course, their perception of what is strong isn't always about physical strength. It's about willpower. Dogs, especially, that's a big deal. Uh, to speak of a common animal that we, a lot of us have familiarity with, dogs really respond to human emotion. They can sense fear and confidence and things like that. So this is part 14 of 19 for Valar Revitas. And we will see Danny again in our finale, part 19, as Barristan is going to fill in from here until we get to the final non-epilogue chapter, Danny 10, uh, in addition to, of course, a Quentin chapter. Essentially, the end of Danny's arc, then, because Danny 10 is it's kind of like an epilogue. It kind of sets us up for next time, gives us a cliffhanger with her running into those Dothraki. 
but it's not interacting with any of this. None of of the stuff we just talked about, other than Drogon, she's got no idea what's happening in Marine, no way to know what's happening in Marine. So she doesn't really think about it very much. She's thinking about other stuff. It's going to be a fun chapter to cover because it is different. It's an exception to the rule here, which is that Danny spends the entire book inside Marine. And now, John 11, packed in black. Okay, the one where Shireen is unclean. Lots of rhymes in that one. Val has completed her mission successfully, bringing Tormund back. And on top of that, he's ready to talk. And why not? Though Bowen Marsh might argue otherwise, John is not some crazy person making deals with the free folk just because he likes them. He does kind of like them. But he's doing it because the circumstances are so extreme. After all, it's just as crazy to see the free folk want to make deals with the Night's Watch. The two have a pretty long-standing disagreement, to put it mildly. As John says, quote, a river of blood runs between our peoples, old and deep and red. John's not unaware of it. It's the circumstances that are, that are wild here, not John's plans. Discounting small-scale trading and things of that nature that either of them are negotiating on the scale of armies and populations and hostages is unheard of. When is a deal between the free folk and the Night's Watch on this scale ever happened except for that one time thousands of years ago when the others came last time. That's when this type of thing happened before. There is precedent, and it's for exactly this situation, the others. Tormund is no fool. He gets the gist of all this. He understands that it's life or death for them too, even more so for them because the Night's Watch are in a much stronger bargaining position. The people following Tormund clearly get it too, or else they wouldn't follow him. After all, they are free folk and they don't have to follow Tormund. But he's trustworthy and proven and strong enough. And that means many of them are going to follow his lead. And John was counting on that when he sent Val out in the first place to find this man, quote. He was not a tall man, Tormund Giant's Bane, but the gods had given him a broad chest and massive belly. We haven't seen him since John 10, A Storm of Swords. Good to see you again, Tormund. After an extensive and somewhat humorous description of Tormund's negotiation style, we see the deal conclude. As far as the terms go, John is satisfied. He's a strong negotiator himself, as we've already seen in the past. Nina writes, this reminds me of the great John back in the Game of Thrones, yelling and threatening Rob, who just takes it all calmly and knows that they're just threats. He's like, you're intimidating, but I'm not intimidated. And in doing so, Earn a lot of respect. Great John was like Rob's number one guy. He's like, yo, I'm scary. And he was not intimidated by me. If you can stand up to me, I respect you. Similar. Tormund's got a big opinion of himself. And he's like, this guy, he wasn't scared of me. That means something because I'm scary. (laughs) So, yeah. A large number of the fiercest free folk warriors are coming over with him. Which, again, points to Tormund standing within the free folk. If these guys stay loyal enough, That's a major gain to the Night's Watch's strength, at least to humanity's strength facing the others. Notably, Ulmer of the Kingswood, our our good friend, the archer, who's been around. Talk about being around. This guy's really been around. And that gives a sense. He wants to know what happened. He's like, well, John, are we going to be friends with them or not? And the men, I think, are with John more so than, like, the officers are the focus of this disagreement. But I think a lot of the men are like, yeah, we definitely rather not fight them. You know, they, maybe they don't like them, but that doesn't mean they want to, they see it like Bowen where it's kill or be killed. 
Uh, and the part of the reason that's important is we need to get a sense of, or we want to get a sense of what's going to happen when John is stabbed. Like we understand how some of the officers will behave, how some of the free folk will behave. Maybe people like Val, the Queens, rest of the Queens men. But what about the rest of the common uh, men of the Night's Watch? What are they going to do? John has doubts though. Of course he has doubts because this is, even though things are working, even though the plan, his plan is going the way he wanted it. He's still not sure the overall strategy is correct, if it's going to work out, if it's worth it. After all, all these families are coming. There's a lot of potential for unrest and, and people to, for violence to break out, given so many different people, not to mention the food supply, which we'll come back to. He takes all the wealth from them. That's part of the deal. That's a, that's a smart move. Maybe it feels a bit unfair. Um, we talked about how maybe Danny should have taken more wealth from the pyramids and, and why at the time. Uh, not for food reasons, but just to, uh, well, we don't need to rehash that. But it goes to show that John is thoughtful along these and he's trying to get ahead of the huge debt they've taken on by uh, maybe paying some of that off by collecting all this wealth. He also acknowledges, kind of like Danny, and Theon as well, that it's too late to turn back. Whatever his doubts may be about this plan, he's committed. And the same seems to be true for Tormund. Sometimes it's hard to imagine Tormund ever being an enemy the way he is, but he's killed Night's Watch. He's raided and done all those things. But he talks about how he's changed. He, he may not be that kind of guy anymore. He's seen so much. He's aged. The times are obviously the sort that would affect one's perspective. And it's the burden of leadership in extreme conditions, right? That changes you. And two, Tormund has lost children, his own children. And this deep connection of parenthood is a big part of this chapter because it's the source of trust amidst a hostage situation, right? If when John, John's noting that the free folk are human beings just like everyone else and that they love their children just like everyone else, even Bowen Marsh can't gainsay that. He doesn't agree. But he knows that he's not going to be able to argue against all people tend to love their children. All parents tend to love their children. It's, there's always exceptions, but at this, on this scale of 100 people, 100 hostages, that's going gonna, gonna to work on most, if not all of them. So it is an effective method. The fact that they love their children is something you can bank on. And it's a great way for John to remind the Night's Watch officers that dealing with human beings matter. In Tormund's case... His daughter's married uh, to Longspear Rick. That's pretty cool. Longspear Rick. That was one of the characters we encountered back with uh, when John was with Corrin and, and all them. And one of his other sons died in battle at the Battle of the Wall and another died from winter. And that's the really tough one. We, he says he had to kill his own son when he rose as a white. And he cites that as indirectly as one of the things that's caused him to change as a human being, as someone that's evolved as a, as a person to progress and, and learn new things. We actually saw something like that on TV. Remember, uh, what was that character's name? She made a big impression. She was only in that one episode at Hard Home. Carsey, right? Carsey, yeah. That was a good character. Val also touches on this topic, but not at all like Carsey. <laughs> Instead of whites, she refers to Shireen's grayscale, and she says the child is not clean. And then she says, I want the monster out of there. Him and his wet nurses. You cannot leave them in that same tower as the dead girl. John shook her hand away. She's not dead. She is. 
Her mother cannot see it, nor you, it seems. Yet death is there. That is an extreme position. Val is literally arguing for death. And we like Val, so this is hard to reckon with. You wonder, well, is she right? Maybe there is a big problem here. Maybe there's something going on that the free folk are aware of that maesters aren't. It's some kind of hard to believe that, but not entirely. The others have power over death. And since Val seems other, otherwise like a decent person, I lean towards this being truthful, or at least sincere. I mean, she believes it. So maybe it is a truth only known beyond the wall. I mean, it may seem strange like for the free folk to know things about Grayscale that others don't. I mean, Grayscale originated on the Roin, right? Like how? Huh? But nowhere else in the world has the experience with the others. Beyond the Wall. Beyond the Wall is a different place than the Roin. Maybe Grayscale works a little differently because of the interactions up there. The others have power over death. And that's kind of what she was hinting at. Like, she's dead. Thus, maybe they have power over her. And that may awaken the disease somehow. To me, I wonder if that's related to Shireen's eventual burning. Like, well, if she's just infecting everyone with Grayscale or if the others are controlling her directly, well, that would be a reason to... <laughs> be, to have to do something about that. It's sad too, because Shireen looks at Val as as a kindred spirit almost. She's innocent and childish. And he's like, oh, we're both princesses, you know? And it's like so much, it's so nice. She's so much not like her mother. Selyse is terrible. Uh, so it's just setting up how sad this is going to be because, man, it, it's hard to like, I, I try to not think too much about Shireen <laughs> because it's like, you know, it's coming. I don't want to, re- I don't want to like really like this character. I can't help it. She's so nice. But yeah, protect yourself. And it's a contrast for John too. John is just like really thrown. Uh, he, he, just a minute ago, he was noticing how beautiful she is standing beside ghosts and how they just like looked like a perfect picture together with their coloring being so similar. Given how connected John is to Ghost. And he's connecting Ghost to her. Is this some sort of transitive property foreshadowing where Ghost is like her and I'm like Ghost, so I'm like her? Is this like a a foreshadowing to connect them later down the line? Certainly the topic of Val being single comes up all over this chapter. The funniest of all being Sir Patrick, who does the worst possible thing when he meets her. He immediately kneels and she laughs at kneelers. And she says, she talks to him like a dog. And John almost laughs. She respects John, though, because you can tell she agrees to kneel to Solis because John says, take this seriously, it's important. Now, she's pretending to take it seriously, but she does because John asked her to and she respects him. Solis gets a bit haughty and Val's temper flares a little and she's like, make us kneel and we're going to just rise again with blades in hand. So, yeah, that's where things come to a head because Solis expects these free folk to be forced to kneel to Stannis and obey the Red God like the first batch were. But John's like, goes into lawyer mode and says, that's not the deal. That was never the arrangement in the first place. I am under no obligation to do that part. So, Solis is very unhappy with that, but there's nothing she can do about it. He's technically correct. The best kind of correct. And a few things are said that we absolutely must discuss, starting with this chat about the other castles on the wall. Quote from Solis. I had been given to understand that those castles were ruins, dismal places, bleak and cold, hardly more than heaps of rubble. 
At Eastwatch, we heard ta- at Eastwatch, we heard talk of rats and spiders. The cold will have killed the spiders by now, thought John, and the rats may be a useful source of meat from winter. Planning to eat rats is pretty grim, but hey, John's thinking practically. Uh, you can't blame him for that. It makes a bit of sense. The bit about spiders is curious, though. I wonder, you know, anytime you mention spiders in A Song of Ice and Fire, and they don't exactly come up a lot, especially in the North, you think, I spiders big as hounds. Hmm, there's a pretty vague connection to that, but it's something that gets me thinking about that. Mm, was with dragons in the last chapter, thinking about what sort of strange ice monsters might be in our future. Though she's mentioned and her influence is sort of omnipresent. This chapter doesn't actually have any Melisandre and she's not on screen. But it does have one of the more striking lines from the creepy undead jester fellow. The crow, the crow. Patchface cried when he saw John. Under the sea, the crows are white as snow. I know, I know. Oh, oh, oh. John himself is a crow, of course. And Patchface sees him and says, the crow, the crow. And his name is Snow. Um, under, the crow, under, this, under the sea, the crows are white as snow. If we think of white crows, that could mean dead crows since the skin goes white upon death and or white ravens, which is a clear symbol of winter and crows and ravens are related. Um, they're both corvuses or what have you. The scientific names are similar given the citadel's traditions with regard to changing seasons, the white ravens are symbols of that. And of course, right now, the changing season is towards winter. And of course, winter and death have a lot of overlap with symbols in these parts, of course. So this, this backs up the idea that under the sea refers to in winter, during winter, another idea is that, which has overlap again, because winter and death are so connected here, is that it refers to the state of being undead, right? Under the sea, like those controlled by the powers of death, which John might be soon, and Patchface could be as well, because he is probably undead himself. Regardless of any of that, this looks like some kind of foreshadowing of John's death, right? It, it doesn't, he's directly indicating John and talking about things that sound like death. <laughs> so I, I, now there's hostages, of course. We've talked about how Danny becomes fond of the, the hostages, the Miranese hostages, and that's a problem for her because she won't kill them. Uh, would John kill these hostages? He says he would. He says, don't try me. You saw me kill Jano Slint. Now, killing Jano Slint is nothing like killing children. Not even close, right? So I wonder if this also will come to head and John will be in that state. However, when it does, if it does, John will be a different person. He will be undead John. And that attitude of John's, who knows what kind of person he'll be. So the John making decisions right now is not necessarily who we should be thinking of. Because the John post-death John is entirely possibly going to be just a whole different kind of person. John is told to his face that what he's proposing is treason by Bowen Marsh in front of a bunch of other people. John replies with a passionate rendition of his oath, again, pointing out the same dichotomy I described earlier, which is free folk are people, and the oath of the Night's Watch says realms of men. It's kind of a technical argument. It's kind of a lawyery argument because clearly the interpretation prior to John's ascension as Lord Commander was that the realms of men did not include the free folk. Otherwise, why had they been fighting them for, you know, 8,000 years or however long? So John's argument here is, ignores 
thousands of years of precedent. Not that I don't think he's right. I do think he's right. I just, again, am pointing to his hmm, not handling some of these arguments super well. I do agree that it's a great point to say, hey, look, they are people. It's also an even better point from a military perspective to point to the fact that they are soldiers for the others. And especially with hard home coming, we can see how there's a lot of uh, potential for the others to gain a lot of strength in terms of new whites for their army. But again, we see just John kind of becoming emotional. He gets sarcastic, dismissive, and almost insulting, which is so different than how he reacts to Solis lording over him and Tormund yelling at him and arguing. He takes all that stone-faced and unemotionally and not personally. But from Bowen Marsh, it's a different level. It's deep in his soul. He, he, it's a more of a struggle with him because it's more personal and because this disagreement has worn him down. It's been around for a while. They've been arguing about this stuff the whole book and they haven't made any real progress. Bowen is pretty much just as opposed to John as he was, if not more so, if not more dug in. The conspiracy, we've talked about when it may have began. Whenever Bowen Marsh is out here talking to his buddies, like maybe we need to get rid of John. We don't know when that started. We, we identified a few different times when it might have. I think at this point, it's safe to say it's been in play for a while already. The people who are going to stab John have already been talking by this point, if not already. If not, then this kicks it off because Bowen is flat out says this is treason. Can't imagine it, it, it waited much longer if it hadn't already started. They also talk about not just hard home and the 3,000 to 4,000 uh, free folk outside the gate right here who are going to pass through the gate next chapter, that there's more at the Shadow Tower too. There's a whole other group there and that's where the Weeper comes up and that's where John also, I think his logic is not so great. I think that he's like, yeah, well, we can't just pick and choose which free folk we allow over. We, it wouldn't be fair. It, wouldn't, it doesn't look right. It doesn't look just. But it looks worse to let the Weeper free south of the wall, in my opinion, and definitely the opinion of several others. I think that Nina and Joe seem to agree on that point that this is a mistake by John, that he should make exceptions, that he should pick and choose. Hey, they're the ones ruling the wall. They have that strength of negotiation on their side. They can say no to some and yes to others and let the others live with it. Um, but John's honor won't permit that. I think he's maybe wrong to see the honor in that when he's looking at men that killed rangers after the peace deal. After Stan has made his offer, anyone who wants to cross has to do this. The Weeper has killed men since then. It's like you had your chance to surrender and have an amnesty, but you've gone on doing violent deeds since that point. Thus, you're excluded from the deal. Tormund didn't cross the wall, but he hasn't engaged in violence. He hasn't attacked anyone. So it's fair to say you can cross. I don't see what's stopping John from doing that. It's just his attitudes. He thinks it's dishonorable. So, which is, you know, that's, that's fair, but I think he's wrong. And I think a lot of y'all do as well. I think, I think a lot of us identify this as a mistake of John's. Sort of like some of Danny's compromises turn out to be mistakes. I agree with you, but I also brought up in the chat that I think that refugees, which is what this is, is different than immigration. This is a little more time sensitive. True. You don't have as much time to, to vet everyone. That's a good point. 
Yeah. But he, it's very clear with, with him that uh, yeah. he's, he's not good. <laughs> and the Weepers is so obvious. This guy yanks his eyes out, sticks heads on poles. Yeah, he's, he's set himself up as an enemy. I think, John, I think you can, <laughs> I don't think it's too much to put him in another category, really. Nina with a, a nice parallel catch here. When John thinks that he would have given much and more to know what he was, if he was doing the right thing, but had gone too far to turn back, I wonder if Rhaegar was thinking the same thing as he made off with Lyanna. He was doing so in no small part, probably because he believed he had to, that this was the only way to father the third head of the dragon and guarantee humanity's victory in the apocalypse. But he was still betraying his merits. There's no way around that. He just realized that was the cost. And he was also jeopardizing his position as crown prince at the same time. But again, he accepted that cost, apparently, uh, and because he thought saving the world was in the balance, and that's clearly more important than keeping the throne. And then once he had gone off with Liana, likewise, it was too far to turn back. You can't be like, actually, let me give Liana back. I mean, <laughs> let me undo all this. Never mind, psych. Yeah, he had also reached a point of no return. Tommy Pappas was a cool catch. He posted in our Facebook group, uh, Grayscale coming up in this chapter. There's a real world connection. A person named Jon Snow, with an H, but still Jon Snow, is uh, one of the major reasons the disease cholera is no longer uh, a, a big problem in most places in the world. I think there, it still comes up in some places, but he's the one who figured out that it's a water supply issue. Um, he figured out the spread and got people to understand that and uh, deserves a lot of acclaim for that. Maybe John will figure out something to do with Grayscale. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy to do that, but maybe his commands or something, who knows? It's possible. We'll see. Included in the peace deal with Tormund are the mammoths and giants, but they can't walk through the wall. They're too big. So they have to go all the way around. I think we met, brought this up before, but I'm going to say it again real briefly. They're not going to hard home. They're in the general direction of it. It's not in their path because it's farther north of the wall and they're just presumably just walking along the wall. But it's possible something diverts them up there. They're needed because there's battle happening there and they go up to help. And then all of a sudden, well, maybe then we have 200 undead giants and 80 undead mammoths instead of those fighting for humankind. They're part of the army of the dead, which it would be kind of awesome in a way, in an epic way, but I would I kind of like the mammoths and giants and would rather see them fight for humanity. But we'll see. We'll see. John flexes his hand a lot in this chapter, which is a real sign. It's, it's his kind of anxiety tick. And that's important, especially because he does it right at the end of the chapter while thinking about Melisandre's warning about daggers in the dark and all that. Well, that's not next chapter. It's two chapters from now. John's final chapter is the stabbing. So, of course, George is paving that road with blood, so to speak. And, well, we're getting pretty close to it. That's all for today, folks. Last week, we covered 169.07. This week, 173.47. Pretty similar amount. We've covered 2,180 minutes of the 2,922. So about 742 minutes left, which is about a quarter. Indeed, we are 74.6% through. What we call that 75. You want to round up, which means three quarters of the way. But that last quarter, 
still represents a lot of amazing stuff. Like I said, a bit more action, a bit more excitement, and as well as a lot of setup for the Winds of Winter. And as we know, this book ends with a lot of cliffhangers, a lot of things about to happen, unlike a lot of the other books, which because of a mix of those things. As always, you can check the podcast version and compare it to the video version to see the difference in lengths. Check out our website where we have the ability, we give you the ability to go to any chapter in any episode, pick the chapter, pick the book. You can go right to it. Uh, Shea put that up on our website a few months ago. Very handy tool. Don't forget to like the video, leave a review on your favorite podcast, catcher, whatever, however you consume History of Westeros. You might be surprised to learn what a big difference it makes in ye old algorithms as far as getting us noticed, helping us spread the word, pick up a few more listeners in advance of what's coming for the rest of the fandom. We didn't mention too many of our other episodes this time. I guess that's part of the feature of there being a little extra action. But we did talk a little bit about the setup for the Battle of Ice. And we talked about the Nine Penny Kings episodes as well. So check out those if you are so inclined. Next time we have a pretty unusual selection of chapters. Three characters who haven't had a chapter in this book yet. One of whom has never had a chapter in any book until now. That's Barristan. Um, so let's read them off here. Cersei 1, Confessions of the Lion Queen, a.k.a. The Mountain Turns White. The Queen's Guard, 63 Years Bold, a.k.a. While the Dragon's Away, the Harpy Will Play. The Iron Suitor, an undrowned red priest comes in handy, a.k.a. Victorian Rearmed. And Tyrion 11, the one with Chekhov's mushrooms, a.k.a. a second son, becomes second son. And there we go. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Ashea. Thanks, Joe and Nina. Thanks to our History of Westeros mods for posting the chapters every week. Thanks to those of you who hang out and post and discuss on Flick or on Facebook or Slack or Discord. On Discord, we've been talking about some of these other... Uh, shows and books that have been coming out near the end of the year. We've been talking a bit about The Expanse. We've been talking about Mandalorian and Vikings and the new Viking show that's going to be out later this year and Stormlight Archive. We're talking about some of those things. That's a that's a cool place to go if you want to talk about some non-Song of Ice and Fire stuff and a Song of Ice and Fire stuff. And speaking of The Expanse, Shea and uh, Kyle do fandom media reviews of The Expanse. It looks like Monday is where they're settled right now. Yes. Confirm. At 7 Eastern. Cool. So check that out. Expanse has been awesome this season. If anyone who's a fan of The Expanse probably knows that already. Uh, check out Here Be Dragons. What are they covering today on Here Be Dragons? I think I saw, and then now I've forgotten. You know, that is so funny. I think it's, isn't it a dragon that. thing? Aren't they actually talking dragons today? Yeah, they are talking about um, Cobra Kai. No, Cobra Kai. That has nothing to do with dragons. Just snakes. Yeah. Okay, cool. I haven't seen Cobra Kai, but the reviews are fantastic. So maybe check that out if you're a fan. Also, thanks to Michael Clarfeld for the wonderful maps and all video intro as well. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Revitas music. Joey Townsend and Jesse Kowal for the regular History of Westeros music that we've been using since 2012. Thanks to Arb Engineer for audio quality assistance. 
Thanks to our many wonderful patrons for the financial support that enables all of this. If you want to join them, join the ranks of uh, pledged Westorians, go to patreon.com slash history of Westeros. Find the reward level that's right for you. As little as two bucks a month all the way up to, well, as much as you want, really. They're not locked in. You can choose your amount. That's how Patreon works. Pick the amount per month you want to support us with and get benefits for it along with acclaim and our thanks. And that's it, everyone. We'll see you next week for part 15. Fandor on Fridays for our game stream and check out all of our other friends around the Song of Ice and Fire community if you're looking for more reread action and or a Song of Ice and Fire fun. Until next time, you know what to do, folks. Valar reads.